wouldn't it be great if when you felt that dark stuff, the kind of icky feelings inside, you had an accurate way to articulate it to other people? Sometimes words aren't enough. What if you used art to communicate those feelings? What if you used art to explore anxiety, feminism, addiction, body image, relationships, societal expectations? Using illustrations as observations? Well, that's exactly what my guest this week has done. Celeste Mountjoy is a Melbourne-based artist who has become the voice for generation. A generation of women that, she says, are no longer prepared to smile politely at the outrages, uncertainties and absurdities of life on the path to adulthood. Celeste uses her art to share her observations on being young, female, and occasionally seriously fucked off. Celeste started sharing her illustrations on Instagram. She was quite young. It was the age of 14 when she began. Almost a decade later, that Instagram has garnered a huge, huge following. Filthy Ratbag is the uh, handle if you want to go find it there. But Celeste has just released a book of illustrations. There's a through line to them, which we explore in this conversation. But the book is called What the Fuck is This? There's over 100 previously unreleased drawings and comics that she created. Celeste joins me today for what is at times quite an intimate conversation about how she uses her illustrations to share her story about being a young girl navigating mental illness, substance abuse, love, grief, time, yeah, all through artwork. She's extraordinary, and I can't wait for you to meet her, but I do have to pay the people at work here. So we're going to play some ads, and we'll be right back with Celeste. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You know, I talk all the time about my art being instant gratification and that just is everything in my life. You know, I, I want to drink 
as much as I can. I want to eat as much as I can in one sitting. I need to draw this picture as quickly as I can. I need to do everything quick. And the moment that I have to sit by myself and be slow, it feels like I'm going to blow up. Like it feels like my brain is going to explode. So what's the easiest thing to do then? It's to you know, have a quick fix, like drink more, eat more, do something more. Something that I hope that I can manage to do is allow the time to turn the pain into diamonds and like to get to a point where I can sit for longer than five minutes and and just sit with the discomfort and maybe within the discomfort I'll find not a solution but something more than just confusion and pain. <laughs> that is artist and author Celeste Mountjoy a.k.a. Filthy Rat Bag on Instagram. This is Osher Ginsburg, Better Than Yesterday. Hello, welcome. This is Better Than Yesterday. Thanks for being here. This is a podcast here to make your day-to-day better than yesterday. Since 2013, we've been doing that by having conversations. That's it. Conversations with people from all over the world through all walks of life, but all the time kind of running around the theme of like, how do you do it just a little bit? How do we get a little bit better at this? How do I? Because I'm not satisfied. You're not satisfied. That's why you're here. I'm grateful to be here. We've been here since 2013, three times a week, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Mondays, Wednesdays with a guest and Fridays with you. And um, yeah, I'm grateful to be a part of it. I'm in Melbourne. I'm in a pillow fort, literally, mate. I'm I'm in a cubby house made of couches. Well, couch and pillows. I'm uh, I'm Osher. I'm uh, I'm happy you're here. Thank you. If you've never listened before, thanks for being here. I'm a um, I'm a white, straight, middle-class bloke from Brisbane. I'm an immigrant, but I'm white. Uh, so no one really bothers too much. Uh, I came here when I was a baby, and um, I'm here three times a week. I make TV. I write books. I make a lot of podcasts. I've got two kids who are of vastly different ages, but equally amazing. A wonderful wife, and um, one pair of sneakers. I've been wearing the same sneakers for about two years. I should probably buy a different pair of sneakers. I just don't care that much. I don't care that much about clothes that I wear through the day. I care a lot about clothes I wear at work, clearly. My suits are fucking amazing because uh, Melissa Byrne and I are on a mission. But yeah, I'm a pair of Uniqlo jeans and three different T-shirts that look the same. That's about it. That's too much. Oh, also, some of that TV work uh, over the years, I mean, in the game 25 years now, but that TV work has led to a Gold Logie nomination. And this podcast, if this is your first time listening, you may find parts of this podcast that you go, wow, you know what? That really helped me. And I hope they do, because that's why I make this show. I try to get something out of a conversation each time that helps me and therefore you. And if the show helps you at all, if any previous shows have helped you at all, and you think, you know, other people could probably do with this, if you vote at tvweeklogieawards.com.au, you can help more people get helped or listen. That's it. That's how you can repay me for listening to this for free. So thanks. So Celeste Mountjoy is my guest today. She's fantastic. If you haven't followed her on Instagram already, Filthy Ratbag is the, I think it's all one word. Yeah. Filthy Ratbag is her handle. The book is great. A book book of brand new illustrations. It's a, um, uh, we, we get into the running through line of the book in a moment, uh, but the book is called What the Fuck Is This by Celeste Mountjoy uh, or Filthy Ratbag, aka you'll find it. If you find a book, you'll find it. Um, she's fantastic. It was such a joy to 
get to know her and have a conversation with her and she's really something. And I hope you enjoy this chat as much as I did. I'm really grateful we got a chance to talk, Celeste. We've been trying to do this for a little while, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we can we can get this done. You are a very powerful voice in Australian art, and that's super fucking cool for someone in the early 20s. I've had adjacency with the art scene in that I lived in the I lived in the states for about 10 years, and one of the people close to me, she was a um, uh, she was a fine art dealer. And um, then I rented a, a room off a woman who um, was in the actual art scene and uh, in Venice Beach. And um, we would, she would say, oh, look, I was divorced and sober and sad. And she'd go, for fuck's sake, come to this party with me tonight. She'd go, okay. And we'll go to this party. And I was like, wow, this is fucking interesting, cute, interesting crew here. And like, I know that person from that film, that person like, I'm like, is that homeless guy someone's friend? I'm like, no, that's the guy that just sold that painting on the wall for $10 million. I'm like, okay. That's always the way, huh? That's always the, the sort of, uh, yeah, scroungy looking ones. And I think <laughs> that the, millionaires. the thing that she really helped me understand, because she went to the Art Institute of Chicago and she told me a lot about what they did there, in that there's the, and we'll get to talk about this because I, I think it's, you know, the volume of work that you output is extraordinary. Um, but, the agreement around art. Um, there's a show on we're watching right now called High Desert with um, Patricia Raquette. And just the agreement about art of like, this is my drop sheet. That is a Jackson Pollock. But the story is the difference. W- when did you first understand that agreement of the value, I guess, the monetary value around the art that you were creating? That's a really good question. And I think, you know, I still am trying to sort of understand those politics in a lot of ways because, like, it is really interesting. It's like where where does that line? I mean, you know, I, I went to art school in, like, year 10, uh, 11 and 12, um, and so you learn a lot about that sort of concept then. So I try and wrap my head around it at that point. But before that, you know, I didn't realise that you could sort of be an artist as a job. I didn't think that that was something that you could do yeah. or you know, have it be lucrative as well, especially the type of art that I made, you know, like I've never been someone who sat down and be able to like punch out brilliant oil paintings or anything like that because I'm so impatient. It's always just been um, a way for me to tell stories quickly and to like punch out how I'm feeling in a fast way. So I don't know, in terms of like being seen as an artist and like when that shift occurs, it's like a bit of a mystery to me still. Um, And I think social media adds to that confusion in a lot of ways because, you know, like I get referred to sometimes as an artist and that feels nice, but then sometimes someone might just call me an influencer or something like that because my sort of recognition began on the internet, I guess, rather than in an art gallery. And and at quite a high profile in your not even late teens, in your mid-teens. Yeah, I was very young. I was like 15. I was a baby. What, where were your parents as they were, like, what was going on with your folks and what kind of messaging was coming from them? Um, everyone always asks me that. It's always, like, the first question I get asked is, Well, it was parents? the second question. Thank you very much. Let the record <laughs> show. <you> <laughs> yeah. I asked you about um, being a legitimate money-making artist first. True. All right. I did not Thanks ask about and, and the only, yes, yeah, so, <laughs> but I am interested. No, you, you. I am interested because um, cause our eldest is 19. You know, and mm. I understand what that 
very clearly what that time is like for a young woman uh, in Australia right now. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of... Well, I guess, yeah. like, on top of that, though, your understanding of that would be quite different from, like, my parents' understanding because you sort of were in the public eye really early yourself too, yeah. and so your experience is quite unique in that way. Like, my parents grew up you know, not with social media, not not really even understanding what I was doing on the internet mm. when I started doing it. Like, I just had unfiltered internet access given to me by my dad from, like, five years old. Um, yeah, because, and you know, like, they're both um, really amazing. Like, I, I have, like, a really loving relationship with both of my parents. They're, they're both quite arty. My dad's very sort of um, free-spirited, ex-surfy sort of, you know, very arty, like got me into watching a lot of film very young and he does music and that kind of thing. So I was surrounded by a lot of creativity and it was definitely encouraged in my life. Like it was, especially like my writing and that kind of thing. Um, and because I was drawing from really, really early on, they were nothing but encouraging. Like one of my favourite things about drawing and writing at that point in time was finishing it and being able to go and show my mum or go and show my dad and, you know, get their opinion and and have an audience like that. Yeah. So I was clearly drawn to having an audience from a really early age, yeah. At what point did they first start to realise that something was happening on their kid's phone that was different? Um, I think... I think it was probably, yeah, 2015 and, like, there was some insight on Facebook or whatever where it was like you've had 2 million views like in the last two days or something like that. Right. And so it was like this really, really quick thing because um, I'd gotten an article published in like Days magazine and so I was getting all these followers quite quickly. Yeah. And like they're, they're not, um, you know, totally inept. Like it was 2015, they sort of were at the point where they knew how to use some social media yeah. and be across it. Um, and I don't know, like I guess I'd just show them articles and that kind of thing and, I don't really recall them being shocked or mm. um, wary even really. Like I, I don't think that they sort of were concerned. I think they were just proud of me. At, at what point, I'm guessing you're pretty young, when the, hey, we really like your work, we're, you know, we're, we're hosting this party in a warehouse in a part of town that you don't really walk around at night. Um, here's the secret code. How old were you when those sort of things started showing up in your DMs? I was super young um, because, you know, like you have been around sort of the art scene and stuff too and like when you are, when you've got eyes on you and especially because the type of art that I was making at the time and the articles that were being written about me were all sort of focused on my age and how controversial the sort of contrast of my age and my art was, yeah. there was, you know, that was the the selling point for my art was the fetishization of my age, right? Yeah. So people having me around at parties or, you know, being friends with me and that kind of thing, it wasn't because they were super interested in my brain or whatever. It was almost like this weird controversial, oh, my God, like almost freak show, like she's 15, how crazy is that? Like let's all sort of, you know. Yeah. It, it, was, it was really strange. So, yeah, probably as young as 15. Um, and, like, that's when I had my fake ID and so I could just go out to clubs and do all that kind of thing. And, and bouncers knew a lot of the time how old I was, but they'd be the ones giving me coke and the ones, like, you know, like welcoming me in and knowing me by name, even though my fake ID said that my name was Elodie. Elodie? <laughs> yeah, I didn't even think it was a real name. <laughs> I remember early 
before G was um, 18 and we would talk to her and, you know, I went out to pubs and stuff. I went out to licensed families before I was legal. And, you know, when, you know, we were being parents and going, well, we really don't want you to do that. I was like, well, I'm fine. I'm with my friends. I'm fine. I'm like, I trust you completely. I trust that you won't go into some cubicle somewhere and take something from some stranger. I trust that, you know, you will look after your mates. I don't trust the 27 year old dude who loves the gym and hasn't slept in three days that you don't want to talk to because he's got the crazy eye. Because exactly. I've been in cl- I've been in clubs since I was seventeen. When I was working, and men will have no fucking problem hitting women, you know, if they've been awake for long enough. <laughs> and she didn't. No, and, and you know? hitting is also, I mean, sort of not the least of your concerns, no. but it's it's one of fucking a million. Like, yeah. and I, I think that the thing was right. Like when we're talking about me sort of going out and partying when I was a very young teenager. It wasn't as if I was being lured into those situations yeah. necessarily or it didn't feel like that at the time especially because in my mind I'd already decided that drinking and taking drugs and all that kind of thing was going to be a part of my life. You know, as soon as I got drunk for the first time of my own accord, I was the one who went to my mum's bottle cabinet, stole the vodka, did that myself. I was like, okay, I'm this is you, it sister. for me now. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, this is it. Um Oh, this magical liquid. It makes all this shitty stuff in my head be quiet. Well, kind (laughs) of quiet. Can I get more of it? Yeah, exactly. A hundred percent. Because, you know, I I was such a fucking anxious kid. You know, when I was 11, I was, I sort of overdeveloped really, not overdeveloped, but I went through puberty really fast. And so I was a lot taller than everyone and I felt a lot broader and I just felt super imposing. And I had all of this sort of, all these new grown-up thoughts and I was still only 11 and there were other girls around me who were still tiny and kid-looking and I just wanted to be invisible. Don't you come and want to watch – don't you um, want to watch Saddle Clubs? Like, no, I want to watch yeah, all the Zac no. Efron shows where his yeah. shirt's off, please. Or worse, <laughs> I want to, like, go on my unfiltered internet access and, like, look up all this weird porn, yeah. you know, because <laughs> like, that's why the internet's there. And then you go on chat rooms and you realise, okay, so my bigness and my overdevelopedness isn't translating that well when I'm playing monkey bars at school with a bunch of 10-year-olds, but when I'm talking to older guys on the internet or – you know, I'm getting a little bit old now and walking down the street and there are guys in their 20s, 30s, 40s shouting at their cars at me. That sort of invisibility isn't something that I wanted anymore. So I was sort of having this crisis of like wanting to be invisible or fit in or be like other people and then realising how good visibility could feel and how good validation could feel. And so for me there was sort of no in-between part from childhood to adulthood. It was like awkward kid not fitting in to like, zoof, I'm a 30-year-old in the body of a 14-year-old, you know, and I know everything and I'm going to get fucked up and I'm going to go out clubbing and that's me now, yeah. You're not Robinson Crusoe there, you know. It's not like you're you're, you're carving the Rosetta Stone. Like this is a story that is, it's it's not an uncommon one, you know, yeah. um, particularly for, for kids who think a lot and get big uh, fast. Mm. And uh, it can be... It can be impossible, you know. I've, you know, seen it in my mates, and I see it now in the, you know, the parents of the kids around, around our, our eldest. Um, it, you, it's like trying to hold down a fire hose; you can't do it, you know. Yeah. And it, it's it's really challenging parenting. Um, it it really is because I understand why people throw their hands up and go fucking do whatever you want. Like, I get yeah. that, I get that, um, but I'm sure your folks, you know, I'm sure they were concerned about you. I'm sure they 
worried about it? Did they understand the scope of what was going on? I think that I was so good from so early on at convincing people around me that I was as old as I thought that I was yeah. and at saying the right things. And, like, like I, you know, I was, I guess, rebellious in my actions and the things that I was sort of going out and doing. Yeah. But I, I wasn't one of those kids that was screaming, you know, go fuck yourself to my mum and dad. Like I was, I was quite tight with them. We got along quite well. So they sort of had no reason to worry that much, I guess, or to, or to think that maybe things were going really badly or weirdly for me. Um, yeah. Cause I tell them the right things and I <laughs> sort of knew how to manipulate the situation and teenage generally are pretty good at doing that when they figure out the formula. Um, uh, yeah. Well, like I can tell you, like I've, I've seen it twice now and the formula's figured out pre-verbal. <laughs> like before Wolf was able to speak, he was doing it. And yeah. um, I, I do another podcast with Charlie Clawson uh, about fatherhood and we had an anthropologist tell us that it's an actual trait. It's a it's a genetic trait that has been passed down because the children that were the best at manipulating the adults around them, uh, even before they could speak, got the most food, care, love, safety, attention, closest to the fire, all that, mm. um, safety, all of that. And so it's a thing. Yeah. It is a thing that we are born to do. We're literally born to manipulate other people to ourselves, sure. to serve ourselves. Yeah, and I was like youngest child as well, so I uh. sort of was lucky enough to witness my older sister's fuck-ups and learn from them and be like, okay, so you're sort of doing it this way. You're just like acting out and sort of have some tact, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you got to have tact um, if you're going to get away with it. And so I sort of would learn from her mistakes and, and like, you know, I guess it helped that I was doing something that my parents kind of took seriously, like, I was exhibiting interstate and doing these group shows and doing interviews with people and, like, it felt legitimate what I was doing. It didn't yeah. feel like I was just making art in these weird, dingy little studios owned by 30-year-old men. It was it was legit and out in the open and yeah. it seemed promising and good. Yeah, and um, just the last thing on your parents, you don't have to comment on this, but I am two of four boys and I think by the time my youngest brother started going through what we went through. Like my mum had seen three boys go through it and go, okay, first time around I might have lost my shit at what just happened, but now I know, eh, you'll be okay until yeah. unless this happens. And and so, you know, looking back at the time, I was like, can't believe you're letting him get away with that. But then afterwards I'm like, she's just fucking – she knew the, where the boundaries were and she knew that he, he was going to learn something out of whatever was going on. And um, <laughs> so it's not like he had an easier ride. I think it was the mum had an easier ride because she knew what to actually get worried about. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, yeah, I think probably every kid – they sort of get more desensitised as well to the acting yeah. out. And, yeah. you know, definitely there are some points where it's, you know, easy for me to look back and feel resentment towards them and be like, fuck, why didn't you see what was going on when it was right in front of you? Yeah. But they're just humans and, and trying to sort of, like, you know, my situation wasn't something maybe that they were no. expecting and it was unique and, uh, yeah, I don't know, I don't feel too much resentment towards them for the, that. Oh, that's okay. Everyone has resentment for their parents. Oh, you know, it's, it's, it's okay. Bit, it's how yeah. it's supposed to be. <laughs> yeah. As you were speaking, you know, I'm kind of reminded um, by uh, – I'm kind of reminded of the career path, and I don't know if you know her. I'm sure you do. The career path of the fashionista Tavi Gevinson, who was, I think, 13 
or 12 when she started doing these stylings of editorials that were just unfucking believable and getting covers on Vogue and Cosmo, like all these big Hearst magazines. And it was, you know, photos at parties of, you know, her standing next to Pharrell, here's this kid. And, um, it, you know, it was just kind of really interesting um, that this idea that some small human was able to do the stuff that a large human was able to do, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't copying. It was a reinterpretation. Mm. And, yeah, I just got all these photos flashed in my head of like all the people standing next to this child in parties very late at night, which you probably shouldn't have been there. Um, mm. uh, and it was kind of kind of interesting. But you've mentioned this a few times, and I'd you know I'd be interesting to interested to unpack it. The nature of of chat rooms when you are you know playing the game of being a grown up and playing the game of being in a grown up space. Eventually, there's going to be physical boundaries when you're in a pub or a club or whatever. But when when you're in a chat room, when you're alone in your house, those boundaries vanish. And unless you're sending photos, I mean, they don't have to be photos of you, but you're starting to get into places that are um, can be quite exciting, can be quite thrilling, but also, as we've clearly seen, quite dangerous. Mm. At what point did you kind of realise that, like, did you ever, like, slam a laptop shut and run away? Like, was there any, like, kind of, quite frightening moments early on or what was it that drew you to those spaces? Yeah, I think I was always attracted to the thrilling nature of it for sure and, um, and you know, it was like another form of storytelling in yeah. itself in some ways because I could be whoever I wanted to be. I didn't have to be an awkward 11-year-old, you know, who was sort of not taken seriously. I could be a cool 16-year-old who you know, knew what she was doing and was funny and pretty and blah, blah, blah. I don't know. I, I think I just slowly sort of desensitised myself to how spooky that world could be and because there was a divide between me and whoever I was talking to, like you yeah. said, you know, it can't ever become too real, I guess. There are a few times where, you know, someone would send me a dick pic or something like that and I'd be like, oh, shit, and, you know, it would get real then. Right, um, and I think my dad might have caught me one time and sort of saw the contents of the conversation and, you know, that's when he sort of clocked on to what was maybe happening. Right. Um, but, yeah, like it was I was really infatuated with the internet. Like I was really infatuated with the anonymity, the way that you could connect with people, the sort of range of people that you could connect mm-hmm. with, um, the difference between truth and lie and, and how much of it's authentic and not. Yeah. And so I guess it, it sort of was a natural progression for me in a lot of ways to go from doing that sort of anonymously as a kid to just going to Instagram and wearing my heart on my sleeve and not having much of a filter and that kind of thing. And what's, you know, from what I know about, you know, how I approach creativity and because I I have a job, everybody's job requires creativity. Just mine is quite a little more obvious. Both my parents were doctors. They were only good doctors because they were extraordinarily creative people because they had to come up with creative solutions. And it's the same method every time. It's like fill your brain full of all the raw material you could possibly need, go and do something else, and then the answer pops up. And that's it. That's how how brains work. And I ended up going to business school in Amsterdam and, and, and learning this, how to deliberately do it, um, which is very similar to what my friend told me about what she learned at the Art Institute of Chicago. And the idea that all of these life experiences you're having are 
informing this art that you're creating in a way that no other artist is is doing. You have this ability to, you know, draw on all of these things and combine things that otherwise no one can possibly, you know, access. Um, you know, so while it might have been dangerous, it might have been scary at, at times, you were able to clearly channel it into something that people resonated with because you are developing these, these quite grown-up concepts and then putting it very simply, visually, as you mentioned, which is the thing that you do very well. At what point did you start to figure out that you still need to do that, you know, research, still need to do that field work? you got to get out there and rub up against the world to have anything to paint or write or whatever. At what point did you start to realise that the deliberate nature of it and how to keep yourself safe while you're doing it? Um, I think... I, I don't know if there was ever really a deliberate nature in in me ending up in the places I did. I think I, I definitely jerried that there was a connection between me being able to put something out there that was maybe unique to a usual 15-year-old mm. and, you know, the experience that I was having and that kind of thing. I, I guess I just thought that it was all cool and good. I, it, it's interesting you ask that because... Maybe it was while I was making the book in some ways and going through my life sort of really quite chronologically and thinking about all these different parts and realising that I guess I, I didn't think that doing those dangerous things could traumatise me. <laughs> I didn't think that, I, like, you know, I just thought, oh, well, great, like it, it means that I ha- can write, I guess. I know these, I know more things. I'm, you know, filling myself up with information about the real world and adults and so I can sort of do my little impersonation of one far better. But I, I didn't realise maybe that it was having some also bad impact on me at the time. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that, uh, yeah, I think writing the book was maybe hard to, a bit jarring at times to face those sorts of feelings, yeah. Not many people do that. Not many people go through chronologically and have a chance to reflect out of the moment upon Mm. things that were transformative in your life. And I must assure you, I'm 49 years old. I am still pretending to be an adult, all right, (laughs) until any of us have completely come to grips with and healed our inner child. We're Mm. all just doing the things that we think other adults do. In your book, you go into quite the journey and I would encourage people to to explore the book because um, there's a lot more in there that we're not going to get to cover today. Um, but there's some pretty surprising things in there about how far you played the game of pretending to be an adult. How did, how did you feel about putting that stuff down on paper? Because we've all done stuff, you know. How did you feel about, you know, this is how I'm going to represent that point in my life. Mm, I think that there are lots of art like themes in the book that were hard for me to talk about and to know how to talk about because, like, I was making the book when I was <clears throat> only 20 and a lot of the art in it and the stories in it are from when I was 15, 16, 17, 18. Yeah. And so there's sort of this really fine line between overexposing everything and maybe being misunderstood and being someone that, you know, can be relatable or that does just is transparent about maybe the really difficult things. In my book, like, I represent different characters or sort of themes as animals and that sort of thing. So older men and predators and stuff in my life I represent as these wolves who are sort of always on the hunt. And I think that 
the feedback that I've gotten a lot of time from young women who have read my book and read stories about the type of things that happened to me, it's so clear to me how common that is. And it, it people like to not think that it is common, that, yeah. that there are these wolves around us and there are wolves seeking out vulnerable young girls like I was because I was a perfect target because I was putting my art out there and I was being seen by the public eye and and being almost groomed by the media into believing that I was some teenage genius, you know what I mean? So Yeah, no cause not to be. I mean, like, if I'm not a teenage genius, why have I got a AAA access (laughs) thing around my neck? Like, come on. (laughs) Exactly. So it was all going to my head. I thought that I was, you know, I thought that it, it would only make sense for me to be uh, hanging around 50-year-old men and, and you know, I had many male older patrons um, who yeah. were, it was it was a really dodgy situation. It was really, really full on and it was only once again while I was, you know, sort of coming out of that period of my life as like a 20-year-old, as an adult woman, that I it sort of smacks me in the face how insanely fucked up it all is and yeah. and how wrong that situation was. Because in the time I was just so deeply immersed that I'd sort of drowned and was blind to it all. I just yeah. thought it was completely normal. And I think, you know, if there's something that I can do, like maybe tell, show teenage girls that it is something that happens and although I'm sure they're so smart and mature and amazing, there's a reason that they're being told that they are those things by these blokes. You know, it's it's maybe not as unique as the situation is as unique as they think it is. All They're all unique. You know, yeah. I was very unique. We're fabulous, but not fabulous enough to justify being with someone 30 years our senior. <laughs> yeah. I've got to applaud you for, for writing about that stuff and putting it down in paper because I think it's, I think it's a very important thing that people understand. It's not rare, mm. but it's not common. It does happen, though. It does happen in our community. And mm. it's this really strange thing because, you know, as my as my mate, so she, uh, a buddy of mine, she walked for Yves Saint Laurent in the 80s. She's six foot three, redhead. You know, when giants stalked the earth, she was, you know, she grew up in Sydney and she's like in the couture, she's getting literally sewn into these clothes before a, a catwalk in Paris, you know, but, you know, she's walking for like unbelievable. I had her on the podcast a little while back and she goes, if only 16 year old girls knew how fucking beautiful they are mm. and that they'll never be that more beautiful. They'll never be that beautiful again, ever. And, you know, if only they knew um, because there's this gap between how someone actually physically appears mm. and the value that we as a society put upon that aesthetic, that visage. Mm. And yet the very nature of being a teenager is that you do not believe it mm. at all. And so having someone else tell you or affirm that is a nice feeling. Oh, completely. And and being able to put financial, you know, an amount. Oh, it's so monetized. It's so fucking monetized. Is, Whether it be a fucking like, I'll tell yeah. you right now, if it's a fucking like or a comment, that's yeah. fucking, it's, it's commodified. Yeah. Or, you know, in like the literal sense, when I'm talking about these older sort of male patrons that I had, if, you know, if I could put a value on how important or attractive I was, it made it feel so much more validated. And yeah. that's so scary. And it's so scary that I sort of, felt that I had to go not looking for it, but that it found me and it and it felt important. 
It's it's also really strange in that breath, like you're talking about the sort of obsession of the 16-year-old girl that society has because they really do. Like there were articles being written in like China about men and, you know, Russia and like all over the joint and every single article started with 16-year-old, you know, female artist, fill the rap bag, blah, 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 blah. Like it always started with that. It was the fetishization yeah. that got me the recognition in the first place. Yeah. And so then growing from there and turning into an adult woman and, you know, maybe going through phases where I gain weight or where I look different or I chop my hair off and I'm not sort of catering to that cute young teeny bopper thing as much anymore mm. and, and having all these people telling you that they're noticing that and that they don't like it and they want you to go back that totally fucks you up too because then it's like, oh, I have to stay where I was and I have to keep being this, you know, jaded, nihilistic 16-year-old girl when I'm just trying to live my fucking life and grow up and and try and grow up normally while not being totally critiqued by strangers on the internet. You talk about these older men, and let's say from 30 up, you've written about that. Mm. What are your thoughts about a community that, Seeing that couple, you know, across a bar, the judgment is that the the literal, the child, because you weren't mm. even 18, mm. the child is in the wrong there. Mm. Mm. Especially if there's money involved and stuff, definitely, mm. you know. But people are really quick to jump on, oh, gold digger or this or that. You must have been asking for it some way or another. Why would you keep going back? I just think that 16 isn't an adult, you know, it's the age of consent in Australia, which is absolutely mind-blowing to me. A 16-year-old, and a lot of people don't know this when I tell them, they they think, oh, no, at 16 you can be with someone two years older. That's the max, right? It's not. You can sleep with anyone when you're 16 over the age of 18 as long as they're not your parent, guardian or doctor, right, or teacher or some sort of figure like that. So a 16-year-old is you know, speaking as someone who was a 16-year-old girl who thought that she knew everything and was, you know, quite sort of mature and streetwise, I knew nothing at all. I knew nothing about the impact that that kind of thing had on me. And because a lot of the men that I was interacting with as well, they weren't guys that I'd meet in alleyways. They were doctors. They were teachers. They were these really sort of high-profile men to be trusted in my eyes, who could be taken seriously and who abused that trust and that power and continue to abuse it even when you've gotten past the age of 16 and you're feeling that trauma because, you know, you go to the police about it maybe you say that this has happened to you. Well, in the eyes of the law, you weren't a kid. You were an adult woman at 16 years old, which God is damn. outrageous, you know. So it's it's also, I guess, talking about it in the book, you know, as much as I sort of felt comfortable doing, it's like I, I think that that really does need a light shone on it because it's absolutely... Mm outrageous that in this year that's still sort of allowed to go on and yeah. and that we're enabling pedophiles and predators and <laughs> and just turning a blind eye to it. It's wild to me, yeah. Yeah, it, and, yeah, the idea that uh, that position of power is 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 abused and that, that power can be maybe a doctor, maybe a teacher, two professions that should fucking know better, thank you very much, Les, but it could just be someone with cash. Mm. It could just be someone with access. Mm -hmm. And the the man in that situation is not the person that we see as the wrong one, mm -hmm. you know, even though it's fucking fucked up. Or even if we do, yeah, it, 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 in the eyes of the law still, it's just not. And that's, that's you know, not 
super shocking because there are some pretty crazy laws still going around and stuff that blow my mind. But it's just there's never any sort of accountability to be taken for that. It's just that they get to keep going on and living their lives and moving on to the next 16-year-old and and they have this constant sort of conveyor belt of freshly 16-year-old girls to to pluck from and they can just keep getting away with that while the 16-year-old becomes the 23-year-old, becomes the 30-year-old who has to live her life figuring out if she needs to blame herself or him or her parents or it's it's really really sad it breaks my heart that's it's a really terrible abuse of power and abuse of control and and the the worst part is you know it's like a frog in a fry pan you don't realize it when it's happening you know you might feel a little bit icky but the icky is so close to danger and fun and thrill you don't realize it's only afterwards as I became, you know, a sexual being, it was it was very similar age to you. I was 11, but I did not, you know, I was a very overweight 11-year-old weird kid, you know. Um, I certainly didn't, you know, there's no way anyone who was in their 30s would be interested in me at 16 either. So I did not have that, but I was no less, like, you know, aware of my own sexuality. And at that age, it just drive, it literally drove everything I did for decades. You know, it really did until I, until I kind of understood to have a better relationship with it. As we're figuring out how to, you know, we're suddenly given the keys to this fucking sports car, you know, the, the highest spec Tesla that there is that you touch the accelerator and fucking you're on the horizon, you know, but we're not told at all how to drive. We're not told at all how to handle it, how much danger it can be. And when we do have an accident, when we do fuck up, when we do make a mistake, the consequences are very different for young women than they are for young men, aren't they? Yeah, completely. I I think around the time that I was a teenager and growing up, you know, like 2015, 16, there was like a pretty big sort of sex positive movement coming through. Um, And I think that I definitely took that on in a big way and I think maybe misunderstood uh, its intention sometimes because I think that I maybe didn't understand the repercussions too much of being hypersexual and of sort of having bad boundaries with the people around me and, and not caring so much about me and my pleasure, but caring more about how desirable I was um, and how, you know, how I could sort of quantify that and and let people know that I was someone to be desired and wanted because I'd never felt that way. I'd, I'd always had such a low self-esteem and yeah. felt so shitty about myself and, and, you know, saw that I had this gorgeous mum who seemed so desired by all these men that would pass her on the street and I just wanted that so badly that I was, you know, willing to hook up with a bunch of absolute losers and and not care about my, my pleasure or my boundaries or my safety or anything like that. So I, I think I maybe sort of misinterpreted the sex positivity movement a little bit for myself. But I think, you know, you do those things and they can be traumatic, but I've thankfully like been able to learn from it. And yeah. I still haven't worked it out at my age. And, you, you know, I think my relationship with sexuality and love and all of that stuff is also really tied into my self-esteem and my drinking even and my my relationship with partying and all of that stuff. It's all yeah. sort of connected. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's sort of an interesting one that I'm still trying to figure out. Oh, mate, we, we all are. <laughs> so you, you've, you've, you've explained it very quite clearly. Mm. When what, what would you be your message to people who, you know, might, you know, want to comment 
on a you know under a picture of a you know of a of a young woman or you know the idea of you're allowed to be sexual and you know sex positive but not that positive mm, like i think you know i have friends with kids who are 15 14 16 like the age that i was when i was sort of being seen by a lot mm. of eyes and I remember at the time, like, all the comments on my photos were, oh, my God, can you believe she's 16? Can you believe she's 16? Because I looked older. I think we need to stop, try to stop that fetishization. I think it's always going to happen. I think that 16-year-old girls are an insanely easy target for predators and people looking to take advantage of that. Um, I think we need to try not to be blinded by the insane confidence that a lot of 16-year-old kids can carry and realise that underneath all that their pineal gland is very underdeveloped and they don't know what they're doing and we need to somehow rally around them to make sure that they are safe by opening dialogue with them and by not treating them like babies because they're not and they certainly don't feel that way but also by looking at fucked up laws like 16 being the age of consent and you know, figuring out who is talking to 16-year-olds and why, you know, are there even 25-year-olds in their DMs calling them hot and that kind of thing. Even that's not right. It doesn't matter how, if she looks older than 16, it doesn't make it okay. That's it at the end of the day, isn't it? No, your prefrontal cortex doesn't finish growing to the age of 25. No, like yeah, mine's not to... even there yet. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. I, I, I drank and, you know, fucking snorted gigantic fucking holes through my my neural pathways mm. <laughs> and spending thankfully neuroplasticity exists so i've spent the last 13 years trying to put all that shit back together but mm. yeah i just you know we don't understand enough about that and uh, mm. yeah i i have a, i have a lot of thoughts speaking of laws i have a lot of thoughts about alcohol being a legal drug you know we have stronger societal safeguards around peanut butter and keeping people safe than mm. we do around alcohol mm. you know we don't stay consume responsibly for peanut butter because that's not good enough we have fucking rules you know mm. there's no peanut butter on planes there's no fucking peanut butter at school do not have it for breakfast if you're coming to have because children that could die and we're cool with that doesn't mean you can't eat peanut butter have all the peanut butter you want but we're more okay about what we can and can't do with peanut butter than we are with alcohol yeah and it's fucking so much more dangerous yeah, it's, it's, it's wild. It definitely is, especially, I mean, in lots of cultures, but Australian culture is so, um, we're so ingrained to associate it with being a legend and, you know, being someone who can do a shooting and get pissed and hold their shit and, you know, like it's it's this kind I'm of obsession that we fit, have. I'm fucking I'll be it. fine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Piss fit is one of the, one of the greatest, shittiest, most brilliant, terrible Australian words. <laughs> what? I don't think I've heard piss fit. Piss fit? Mm. Oh, it's like. Piss fit is like, how are you? Oh, fucking dusty. I'm not very piss fit. And my mate from college showed up. We went at it like we used to. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so like you're not in a – okay, I get it, I get it. You're not, you you're not well trained form. up. Yeah, no, okay, you don't okay. have any form. You're not, yeah, you're being a bit of a lightweight. I'm with you. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Like or essentially like your liver has recovered <laughs> to a point where you now actually really feel it versus <laughs> you're just kind of bouncing along this, you know – 
a couple of cells higher than cirrhosis. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Fuck. Yeah, it's yeah. Ter- it fucking terrible. It's fucking terrible. Mm. Just a moment away from Celeste Mountjoy because we have to play some ads. If you'd like to, while you listen to the ads, you can go to tvweeklogieawards.com.au and throw a vote my way for um, Gold Logie. It'll take you less time than it takes to listen to these commercials that help pay the people who work here. Go. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's fair to say, and, you know, I'm not going to say the word genius, but you're, you're clearly, you clearly have a gift for this. You don't accidentally become the kind of artist that you are if you don't connect with a lot of people from outside the art scene. Like, that's how you really, you got to transcend beyond the people who, you know, go to the parties I used to go to in Venice Beach. You know, you got to get to the point where it's kind of mass consumption and, and you know, you don't get there unless you got something, all right? Mm. And uh, as I like to talk about, you know, I only have the career I've got because of the brain I've got, all right? And I'm only able to do the things I can do and better than other people because of this particular way that my brain is unfortunately it comes pretty shitty bits and i have to work pretty hard to keep those bits in control mm. um i control them a lot in a far healthier way nowadays um but it still work how are you with the balance between the things that your brain does and the way you go about life and the ability to keep producing art and you know the things that you know perhaps don't serve you it's it's a very interesting question. It's something that I think about all the time because you're completely right. Like it, it all is connected. My creativity is connected to um, things that I'm really proud of, like being able to communicate with people and understand them and identify things in myself. And, I, you know, that's a really good thing. I'm really glad that I have that. But it also comes with, you know, my creativity is very much uh, connected to my mental illness and the anxiety and depression and that kind of thing and and then also the anxiety and the depression and that kind of thing have sort of managed to lead me into being absolutely obsessed with booze and, you know, any drug that I could get my hands on. Um, So I think it's like sort of bittersweet in that way, isn't it? Because, yeah, you, you sort of think like can I have it all can I just have the good parts but it seems sort of a lot harder than that to achieve I mean I I think it's also hard being open about struggling with drinking and substance abuse and that kind of thing while you're actively still on a journey with it and and Mm. dealing with it you know I'm only 23 and in my book, like I've got a whole chapter called Big Drunk Fuckhead about me being a big drunk fuckhead basically. And I so badly want 
the book and the chapter to be able to end with and then I went to rehab and then everything was okay and now I am glowing and perfect and I will never fuck up ever again. But that's not the reality of it. Oh, look, I can absolutely relate to that because, um, I mean, I tried to stop many times. I understood. I was told I had a problem at 22. I ignored that for a long time until I was about 33, 34, no, 30, 32. So like 10 years mm. and then realized, oh, fuck. Oh fuck! This is I can't not do this, and it took me seven more years to actually actually stop. Mm. And I'd, I'd I'd get days, weeks. I think the best I got was eight or ten weeks at a time. Mm. But then, like, I I was ill-equipped to deal with m- essentially my brain unmedicated. Medicated. Yeah. The drug I was taking was alcohol. I was ill-equipped. I've, I've since learned um, ways to deal with that, and I'm on far better fucking brilliantly pharmaceutically pure meds that help me deal mm. with uh, what's going on mm. and there's benefits and side effects to everything mm. and I am at peace with the balance that I'm at now. But people, and I talk about this all the time, Celeste, like people who go, why don't you just, have, just don't have another drink? It's like, well, that's because you're thinking that with your brain, mm. all right? Why don't you stand at the top of a stairwell, put your hands in your jeans pockets, and then I'm going to tell you, promise me you won't take your hands out of your pockets. And he's like, I promise you I won't take my hands out of your pockets. Like your life depends on it, like my life depends on it. You're going to take it in the face. I'm going to take it in the face. And I shove you in the back of your shoulders. Your hands will come out of your pockets. I told you not to do it. I didn't want to do it. It's impossible to not do. Yeah. And that's the thing that people don't understand about addiction. Until you've come to the point where you, unfortunately, you have to realise that you're at this point where you realise it's I I I I'm going to actually have to stop this because there's no way I could not do it, and I have to face why I do it. Mm. Um, you you can't find your way out of it. But yeah. that's fuck. It's hard to do, and it that's can't happen quickly. Very hard. No, it, yeah. it's extremely hard. And like I've you know I talk all the time about my art being instant gratification, and that just is everything in my life. You know, I I want to drink as much as I can. I want to eat as much as I can in one sitting. I need to draw this picture as quickly as I can. I need to do everything quick. And the moment that I have to sit by myself and be slow, it feels like I'm going to blow up. Like it feels like my brain is going to explode. So what's the easiest thing to do then? It's to, you know, have a quick fix, like drink more, eat more, do something more. You know, like the last chapter in my book is called Time Turns the Pain into Diamonds. Oh, my God. If that's not a fucking brilliant country <laughs> song title, oh, my I God. Don't say that. <laughs> no, Time I, no. turns the pain into diamonds. Oh, no, not that kind of country. <laughs> what no, are no, you no. thinking? Oh, no, no. So, Celeste, I've played in a, a, in a lifetime. I've played in a in a funk metal band. Mm-hmm. I've, they're like a proper fucking metal band. I've played in a double bass in a hip-hop band, and I've played double bass in a country band. So I'm all music is great to me, like mm. Pop, I love it. And I'm on this, I've just, you know how you sometimes get this kind of flashback and I just remembered, oh, yeah, that's right. I had heaps of denim shirts and I listened to a lot of, and, you know, dialed it up and then, uh-oh, and then I just fell backwards down the water slide of old country again <laughs> and I'm just all about it. Not the whiny pop country shit. Mm. I'm talking about like the proper, you know, kind of gnarly real shit. Yeah, well, and I'll take t- it as a compliment then. <laughs> that's a Lucinda, that is a fuck, that's a Lucinda Williams song if ever I heard one and it's <laughs> fucking awesome. Thank you. Time turns the pain into diamonds. That's mm. fucking good. Mm. Sorry, I took you on a tangent. No, there, no, no, really no I like it. Um, yeah, like while I was writing that, I think I was really – hell-bent on 
being able to say that I'd found that as my solution and that I had let time pass. But I hadn't because, you know, I was 20 writing the book and two years had passed since I was 18 when the peak of a lot of really bad shit was happening and I was in a really bad place and grieving and trying all these different meds and, like, but time had barely passed for me. But I couldn't even let time pass enough in terms of just sitting on a couch without any other stimulus for five fucking minutes. Like, I think for me that chapter and sort of wrapping up everything in that way is more like a hope for myself or like a something that I hope that I can manage to do is allow the time to turn the pain into diamonds and like yeah. to get to a point where I can sit for longer than five minutes and and just sit with the discomfort and maybe within the discomfort I'll find not a solution but something more than just confusion and pain. <laughs> What I'd say to you about sitting on the couch is like, I, I understand that. And I'm sure many people are trying to put it in their brains right now. It's like, could I sit on the couch for five minutes and not do anything? Like, that's fucking hard. What you've just described is the Kilimanjaro of, of sitting quietly in this day and age. Start at five seconds, mm. you know, start two breaths, one breath. Can you do it for one breath? If you need something to think about, you know, geez, the variegation on those leaves is really interesting. You know, you find something in the room to be curious about and then you're done and you do two breaths tomorrow and that's it. It's it's just a tiniest bit at a time. You're not trying to finish it today. You're not trying to be perfect at it today. You're just doing a little, just 4% four, is the magic number, by the way. Um, that's the amount of, of, of challenge you need to create a growth response in however it is that you do. Um, so that's what I would say to you, you know, and it is in just simply growing that muscle and understanding that you'll cope and trusting that you'll cope. I mean, that's how that's my my experience of it, but I absolutely can relate mm. um, without a fuck without without a shadow of a doubt um you've got this book out there now uh you've put art out in the world before you know i always if i'm nervous when i send a podcast off to andy to cut up or before i hit send on something i've written it means that i've done a good job it means that i've 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 kind of gone to places i've been as authentic as i can be to the point of being vulnerable what does it feel like to have this thing out of the world for people to appreciate without even knowing who you are. It has to exist by itself. Yeah, that's a really, like, the thing that you said at the end, that it exists on its own without people having to, you know, have followed my story since 2015 or to sort of feel like they have that um, knowledge of me. It's a really terrifying thing. It's, you know, I don't take criticism extremely well um, and I take it really hard and I take it really personally, which I've had to try to unlearn um and you know of course it's hard because it adds to that feeling that we've spoken about about that sort of discomfort and and oh my god how do I handle that how do I handle it it feels almost impossible um but I think with all my art and you know all my life I've gotten well all of my life being an artist I've gotten criticism here and there and there are always going to be people who don't understand my story or disagree with it or just don't like me, you know, that's normal. Um, And I think that for me it sort of makes it worth it to be able to have people who could just pick up my book in a library. Maybe a 15-year-old girl would pick up my book in a library and not know who I was and know that there's someone who can relate to her anxieties or her feelings of, you know, feeling like a bit of a freak or going through a hard situation or that kind of thing. I think that yeah. it makes it really worth it for me. 
you know, it's, I guess, sort of cliched to say, like, I'm doing it for the kids. But, like, I, I think I'd just like to be able to be there for solidarity, solidarity for anyone that I could be because that's all that I've ever really wanted. I've just wanted someone to grab my hand and say, it's okay, it's not that bad. It's, it's you know, and if it is that bad, it's fixable too. Um, Celeste, you just described the the, the the only reason that I started this podcast. So I wanted to hear the kind of conversations that I needed to hear when I wasn't doing well. And that's why I started this show. And that's it's an extraordinary place to come from and it's a great place to stand when you are creating something like that. Uh, what's brilliant is that even though you've had a career's worth of work behind you already, you're really only getting started. And so I'm thrilled and I'm just so, so excited to see what you do next and, and, and where this goes from here. You know, it's, it's fucking amazing. I'm so excited for you. And Thanks, Sasha. It's not often that I get a chance to speak like this with people. So I'm, you know, I have guests on all the time, but it's, 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 it's rare that it's like this. So thank you very, very much for, for the day. I've really enjoyed this. Me too. It was just lovely. It's exactly what I needed. Thank you. <laughs> that was Celeste Mountjoy. Isn't she great? The book is called What the Fuck Is This? What the fuck is this? You can say it so many different ways. What the fuck is this? this yeah it's really interesting filthy rat bag is who she is on instagram she's cool i really like meeting her yeah i think she's an interesting human being and i hope you got something out of that and i hope it kind of you know i don't know shone a bit of light on what it is to be a full-time artist and it's really fascinating isn't it I have to go, but I'd like before I go to say that if this podcast has helped you at all, if there's a young woman in your life perhaps that you wanted to share this show with, if you think, yeah, yeah, I could probably deal with listening to someone that sounds like, you know, they're going through a similar path. Celeste, yeah, why don't you go listen to Celeste, kiddo? You might feel okay. If you want to send it on to them, I'd be most grateful to you. And if you want to um, throw a bit of reciprocal energy my way for listening to this show, you could go to tvweeklogiawards.com.au and throw a vote my way for the gold logie. Pretty sure I'll turn the gold logie statue into a microphone stand. That's probably what I'll do. <laughs> I'll put a link in the show notes as well as a link through to the email list. Um, we're trying to build up that email list and... Um, there's some big things coming. There's a, a lot of change going on, but I'll tell you about that in a moment. There's more than just my hair. Did I tell you? I told you on Friday. I've got a new haircut. You've probably seen it by now. But I wasn't allowed to show it on Friday. But I, I could show it now. Anyway, get on it. Thank you very much to everyone that helped me make this show. Abby Benno, who helped produce this episode. Uh, Rachel Barrett, also on production. Andy Ma on audio and video post-production. Bree Steele on research. Toe Hyder on the music. And you for listening. I'll see you Wednesday. Thanks for being a part of it. 